Join me in prayer. Father, that is, yes, what we want, your presence. We thank you, O oh God, that you have promised that to us. So this morning, as we have opportunity to be instructed by your truth, I pray, O oh Father, that you would open up our hearts to willingly apply what, what we hear. Oh God, may we recognize the, the joy and privilege it is to serve you as a, as a believer, but may we also recognize the challenges that come with that. And where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, who lifts up our heads, invites us to run to him for refuge, in a hostile world. So Lord, we just ask this morning that you would um, minister to our individual needs. Help us. We come here, Father, this morning desiring to be in your presence, knowing that we need your help and asking, us, asking you, O oh Lord, to apply your grace to our life that we might serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, as I've listened and listened to my own prayers, two common themes seem to pop up. One is, Lord, please be with us. Please be with us. When, in fact, the Lord has always promised to be with us. We're asking him for something he's already promised. The other one is, Lord, please keep us safe. Lord, keep my family safe. Lord, keep this mission safe, whatever. We're asking, Lord, keep us safe. This morning, as we listen to the words of Jesus, we're going to find out that he says, you won't be safe. Christianity is not safe. We have this great privilege of being saved, but we are not promised that we will be safe. Sometime before Jesus made it to the Mount of Olives, where he was going to pray and then be arrested, Perhaps he was still in the temple courts, we're not sure. Somewhere between the upper room and not yet crossing the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives. He shared with his disciples that things were about to get very hard. Within hours, he was going to be arrested, crucified, killed. And shortly thereafter, it was going to be open season on disciples. In fact, by the time the writers of the New Testament completed their writings, it was already open season on disciples, followers of Christ. In fact, Jesus' prophecy that it would be difficult, it would be hard for them, was already policy in Rome. It was policy for 200 years to kill Christians until 
Constantine came into power. So as we complete or get near to the end of the, what's called the farewell discourse, would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16 because Jesus gave them great hope in this section. In light of the challenges of living as a faithful follower of Christ in a wicked world, what hope do we have? John chapter 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Things are about to change. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not, do, do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This is the Word of God. It always comes as a shock to us when we hear that a Christian is killed in the line of duty. And so it should. But in light of the scriptures, we should not be shocked to hear of this. In fact, Jesus warned that this is the way it would be. It, it occurred in his day. It occurred in the several hundred years after him. It occurred through the dark ages. And today in our Western culture, there is a movement afoot to systematically eliminate Christian values from the marketplace, the workplace, which is an endeavor to squeeze Christians out of the system or to conform to it. So 
while we may not yet completely identify with Jesus' warning that they will kill you, the signs around us are very ominous. I've said this to you before, that believers should be making their move now to provide for their families by moving away from the system and finding ways to provide and become a necessary service yourself. Because the world system is squeezing you out. Jesus warned us of this. This is not something that we should be unaware of. But here's what Jesus promises in John 16 and also in 15. He promises that he's going to give a helper, an advocate, a paraclete, it's called. Uh, literally another of the same type is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who will enable us to plow into the headwinds of wickedness without fear, with confidence, In some ways, we probably were hoping in the discussion that Jesus was having with his disciples that they might have said to him, don't you care if, if we get killed? You've said here that, that, that when anyone kills you, they'll think you're offering service to God. Jesus, don't, don't, won't you care if we get killed? What we do know is that Virtually all of the disciples, disciples were martyred for their faith, with the exception of John. And we know that at the instant they were martyred, their existence became infinitely upgraded into the presence of the Lord. This is why Jesus can talk about killing the body as if in many ways no big deal. Because while it might not be safe to live in this world, those who are saved have nothing to fear, nothing to concern themselves with. But in the meantime, Jesus promises his presence with us, that the advocate will be with us. Now, those of us who understand our Trinitarian theology know that God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. We know Jesus is talking about the triune God. He's talking about the third person of the Trinity. Here he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking here about, about a different role that the Holy Spirit will now be engaged in in the new covenant community. One of the promises, one of the great promises in the Old Testament, last day promises, particularly in Ezekiel 36, is that the role of the Holy Spirit would change. Jesus is now telling them that it's now about to happen. And, and the role of the Holy Spirit would change in this way. In the Old Testament time, the Holy Spirit was mostly with God's people, but rarely in God's people. Occasionally, and for particular assignments, like being a king or 
taking on the role of, uh, of uh, building the temple or whatever and needing certain things, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person and indwell them and help them in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit would not permanently indwell people in the Old Testament. In fact, that's why David in Psalm 51 called out to the Lord with some fear and trepidation, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Why would David pray that unless it could happen? And it did happen because that's how it functioned in the Old Testament. But this glorious truth, this glorious promise that was given to those in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit would move into the lives of followers of Jesus Christ permanently. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is promising. So he's saying, while I'm going to be going away, you should be okay with that because I'm going to send back another of the same kind who will not only be with you, but will be in you. I was limited in the sense that in the physical body that Jesus occupied, he could only be with them when he was proximate to them. If they were 50 miles away, he wasn't with them. But in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is with us no matter where we are. And so in this statement he makes to them, it's going to be tough, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be trials, but men and women of God, I will be with you because I will indwell you. I will live in you. This is how God internally influences his people, you and I. God occupies our bodies. And it happened at the moment of salvation. When you came to know Jesus Christ, you were baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was baptized into you. Ephesians 1.13, Galatians 3.2. So those who truly have the saving life of Christ also have the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is now stating. That's what Jesus is promising here. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is he promising in this text that this advocate, the Holy Spirit, will do, will engage in? This is one of the best sections of Scripture that teaches us what is the role and responsibility of the Holy Spirit in our world today and in our lives. And the first is this, it's found in verses 26 and 27, is the Holy Spirit energizes the mission of the gospel. The Holy Spirit energizes the mission of the gospel. Do you notice that Jesus said, when the counselor comes, who I'm going to send from the Father, the Spirit of truth goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit's responsibility, the Holy Spirit's role is to testify to this world about the reality of Jesus Christ. I suspect you have encountered this as I have in asking people what is their relationship with God and so on, and people will say, I believe in God. I say, well, that's great. That puts you in the same uh, category as Satan because he believes in God as well. Believing in God is not enough. Jesus makes it fairly clear or abundantly clear here that the spirit of God's role 
is to testify to the world about the reality of Jesus Christ. And we've encountered this, of course, as we've moved through this. One of the truth assignments of God, uh, of God the Holy Spirit is to make sure that he affirms the reality of Jesus Christ. And people who just camp on, well, I believe in God, but go no further than that, indicate in so doing that they don't know Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, you can't help but affirm him. You can't help but testify with respect to him. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 27, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Our understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ comes from eyewitness accounts and from our own personal experience of knowing Christ. And we are moved by the Holy Spirit to testify to him. God designed the source of our faith and our confidence to be first divinely energized by the Father through the Holy Spirit to give power to us to believe in Jesus Christ. We all know that Jesus continues to be a lightning rod to the world's hatred. In fact, he stated this earlier or near the end of John chapter 15. He says, if, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. In fact, in verse 25, then Jesus says, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus continues to be a lightning rod for the world's hatred. And one has to wonder why that would be so. I mean, Jesus was crucified and buried, given up for dead. Shouldn't that have been the end of it? Shouldn't it have been done away with? Shouldn't the world say, hey, we crucified that guy. He was buried. He was dead. Why is the world continually all fired up with respect to its hatred toward Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit is alive and at work. And the Holy Spirit is continuing to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit continues to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ through his real followers, Christians. And we continue to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ because our Savior is alive. Our Savior rose from the grave. Our Savior is continuing to save people. We had testimonies this morning, six testimonies this morning of the life-transforming work of a real, live Jesus Christ testified by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, through his servants, uh, those who've been saved by Jesus Christ. He continues to energize the mission. He will testify about me. And all those who know Jesus Christ continue to testify about Jesus Christ. We just can't help ourselves. He's alive. We know him. We know he is true. Christianity continues to thrive because it is real. And God promises to keep the faith alive through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of God's saints. That's why we go into a fire up the grill Sunday with incredible confidence that God will save people because that's what he does. 
He continues through the Holy Spirit. And we have had continual salvations here at Calvary because of the work of the Holy Spirit, testifying to the authenticity of Christ. How else can we explain this other than the work of God? Secondly, the Holy Spirit's work is to be Christ's presence in persecution. Listen, he tells them, guys, ladies, you're going to get thrown out of the synagogue and some people are going to kill you. That's, that's, not, that's not the send-off conversation you want to have, is it? But Jesus says, I, I will send the comforter to you. He will be my presence with you. Jesus is not so much concerned about their deaths as he is about their defection. See what he says here? All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. I, I, I've told you this. I want you to remember this. So when the time comes, I want you to remember this, that I warned you that these things would happen. Why did he want to tell them up front? He didn't want them to be surprised by this. Why? Because he was concerned that if this would happen to them, they would say, well, what happened here? Maybe this isn't true. Maybe this whole thing about Jesus Christ is, 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 not, a tr is not true. And in fact, Jesus wanted them to know that waves and waves of trials and persecution and hardships were what they should expect because, he says, the world hated me without reason and the world will hate you as well without reason we're kind of likable people aren't we what does the world have to hate us for but you need to know that um, you know when we look at this and say well they put you out of the synagogue we're like well okay is that a really a big deal you weren't you weren't being taught well there anyway we need to know that being tossed out of the synagogue was a desperate situation for them. You know, we, we've grown up carrying around the fullness of God's word. We have it anywhere we want to go. We have multiple copies of it. How many copies do each of you have in your homes? You probably have many, many copies in your homes. You have copies wherever you are. I've got a copy in your car. You've got a copy on your electronic device or multiple copies, multiple versions. If we threw you out of the church here, which we wouldn't if you were faithful to the Lord, of course. But you'd be like, well, I still got lots of Bibles. But they, hadn't, they did not. They, they would not have any access to the scrolls of the Old Testament. They would not have any access to the reading of God's Word. They would not have any access to the gathering of God's people. They would be thrown out of their social network because that's what it was. The synagogue was their social network. This, this social network was, the, for the most part, the lion's share of their businesses. They were tradespeople or craftsmen or craftswomen or whatever they were. They depended on each other for the economy. This literally was a death sentence in terms of providing for their families. You'd be thrown out. This happens in our world today still. People are thrown out of their social system. And it says some people will actually kill you. And they'll think it's an offering to God. They'll think they're doing God a favor. 
How, how often have we heard through history of the religious zealots in varieties of uh, religions, but not the least in what's called aberrant Christianity, who have, under the guise of God, persecuted and killed people. Because people have called their leadership on scriptural integrity or lack of scriptural integrity. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Many of you have known what it's like to have been thrown out of your family, be ostracized from your family. I've heard many of your testimonies. I've prayed with you here at the front of the, the church. The hurts. Because the world functions on a different set of values. To those values, you must submit or you will pay for it. But interestingly here, one of the great realities about our God and the areas of trust that we can have in Him is that when we learn that when God seems to be taking something away, it is really going to result in something to gain. That Jesus was leaving them physically was beyond, bear, beyond their ability to bear. They, it says they were filled, in verse 6, filled with grief. They couldn't, couldn't even ask him questions. They, didn't even, they, 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 they weren't even asking him, what, what should we do about that? Or, or how should we respond to that? Or what are we gonna... Jesus had to tell them that, that your, your grief is, is... You're not even asking me the right questions. Sorrow had so filled their heart. But I'm coming to you. And so um, Christ's presence is found in the whole, through the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, you'll notice here in verses 8 to 10 a, a fascinating role of the Holy Spirit that we cooperate with and engage in, and it is this. The Holy Spirit convicts this belligerent world directly and through our Christian advocacy of their failure to respond to God in Christ Jesus. See what it says here in verse 8? When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you, will not see, where you, you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world, in other words, Satan, now stands condemned. This is quite um, stunning. That in our world today, and I think you witness this, I think you experience this, you know this is true. We live in a world that is demonstrating by its actions, a profound sense of guilt. We see it all around us. It's, it's not new because Jesus stated this when he was leaving, that this would be the, that, that the Holy Spirit's ministry would be to convict the world of its guilt for not loving God. 
This has been an ongoing thing. But I, I've witnessed and experienced, and I think you are as well, are witnessing and experiencing an increasing evidence of a world system that is steeped in guilt by the actions that they are proposing, by the ideas that they are coming up with, by the legislation that is being put through the parliament, by the decisions that are made in corporations today with response to how they are dealing with people. There is this concentration that we see all around us of this massive sense of guilt. I mean, specifically, we call it lately virtue signaling. We see it happening all around us. That our world is trying to compensate by doing things to somehow feel good about themselves. I want to speak more specifically about that in a moment. But what the Holy Spirit is actively doing, has been actively engaged in since Christ ascended to heaven, and is very actively engaged in right now, is defining our world in terms of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of people who are guilty because they don't believe in Jesus, who are guilty because they are resting on their own self-righteousness, and who are guilty because they don't believe there is judgment coming, versus another kingdom that absolutely believes in Jesus Christ, trusts and relies on his righteousness, and now lives under no condemnation because of him. <clears throat> These two kingdoms are being given clarity through the work of the Holy Spirit today among us. And we participate in it. <coughs> Excuse me. Our world today and has been all along, is being intentionally groomed by Satan to call wrong right, to call injustice fair, to call immorality and moral ugliness beautiful. And the Holy Spirit is gathering evidence that convicts the world of its guilt. In fact, this language is what Jesus, when Jesus turned into a prosecuting attorney earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, by the way, the Holy Spirit is going to continue the work of the prosecuting attorney of God. God is the judge over all this world, and the Holy Spirit is gathering evidence. That's why this is like a court case that has come upon the earth. And this court case is ongoing. And it's, it's, we are participants in this, in that as we break this down, I want to sh show you our part is to look and be different. Like a good apple versus a not so good apple. Do you know which side you're supposed to represent? The Holy Spirit has given us 
the mission uh, of confidence in the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ. We have the promised permanent presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And now we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in being His evidence that there's a better way to live. That the world is being convicted in the scene of our lives, in the demonstration of our faithfulness to the Lord. And as this takes place, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit convinces some people of their guilt. And they turn to the Lord and are saved. Don't all of us have that testimony? Aren't we all that? Weren't, weren't we all convicted at one point of our guilt against a holy God? And, and didn't the Holy Spirit convict and convince us of the reality of Jesus Christ? And, and didn't we embrace salvation, seeking the forgiveness of the Lord and come to faith in Christ? This is the work that he's talking about here. The, the Spirit of God is convicting the world of sin for not believing in Christ. You can't be involved in this work if you don't know him yourself. But it is a simple fact that if you don't know Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, and this word believing is not just believe intellectually, oh yeah, I believe there was a historic Jesus. This is the act of putting my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. This is the act of believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that I give my life fully to him and he takes me into his life. That's what this believing is talking about. And in the absence of that, you are living in sin, regardless of how nice a person you are, regardless of how much charity you do or how kind you are to people. In the absence, God's word says, of believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are guilty every single minute of your life of sin. You live under the weight and oppression of sin every day of your life. He says also you are guilty. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of the guilt of righteousness. Now what does this mean, righteousness? This means because we're saying, isn't righteousness good? Well, it's good if it's Christ's righteousness because there's only one who is good. The perfect, sinless, righteous Christ who imputes his righteousness to us at salvation causes us to be justified, declared righteous. That righteousness is good. That righteousness is the only righteousness that pleases God. That righteousness is the only righteousness that grants you access into the presence of God for all eternity. But there's a, a righteousness that doesn't get you to God. There's a righteousness that keeps you away from God, in fact. And that's the righteousness that's being talked about here. It's called self-righteousness. It's the things we do to try and compensate for the guilt that we feel in our lives that is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But we don't understand that. It's the kind of righteousness that our world is meeting out right now in trying to 
lift the burden of guilt off of itself. It's the kind of righteousness that, that your corporation is engaging in when it includes diversity and inclusion and equity, patting themselves on the back saying, look at how good we are. Look at how nice we are. Look at how diverse we are. Look at how inclusive we are. Look at how equal we are. In spite of the fact the corporate boss is making a gazillion dollars and the workers are making nothing, but look how equitable we are. Uh, that's the kind of thing that they're trying to remove their guilt. That's the righteousness that doesn't cut it with God. And it says here in the text that you are guilty of this righteousness or this this righteousness which is not righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In other words, the model of righteousness walked among us in Christ. When he was crucified, buried in a tomb and rose again and ascended into heaven, that model of righteousness went into heaven. But now, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that model of righteousness is you and me. And our role in cooperating with what the Holy Spirit is doing is by living out the righteousness of Christ, not our own self-righteousness. When people ask us, why are you kind? Why are you gracious? Why are you nice? Why are you honest? Why is your family loving? Why do you love your wife so much? Why does she respect you so much? We don't say, well, just gonna, I'm, a, I, I'm a good person because we're not. We say, well, it's because of the powerful righteousness of Christ that enables me, empowers me to live a life that models him. We live in a day when they think that permissiveness is righteousness. And they think that inclusion of any behavior whatsoever is how you are gracious. We're living in a time when they think that grooming children in gross perversion is giving them an open mind that they might be more willing to accept people. We live in a world where they think that encouraging people to live in a fantasy world of identity politics is doing them a favor. We're living in a world, beloved, that is, that is lining up, setting up a tsunami of despair and dis, uh, uh, depression and discouragement and destruction that we have yet to see. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of this. Convicting the world of judgment because their champion is condemned. Satan has already been condemned at the cross. And their judgment is warped. The guilt of utter spiritual blindness in our country is occupying every level of society who are demonstrating and giving evidence that they are offspring of Satan. Mayors, members of parliament, members of provincial parliament, teachers, 
board of educations, ministers, preachers, social services, guilty. Guilty. Guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ. Guilty of thinking that they can buy off God with self-righteousness. Guilty of thinking there's no judgment for their wrongs. Guilty. And we pray that they will not remain that way, but that they will be convinced of the goodness of Jesus Christ. Well, finally, the Holy Spirit reveals the excellencies of Christ, verses 12 through 15. We know that the Old Testament scriptures were God-breathed. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 and said that all scripture is God-breathed. Well, what was he referring to there? The New Testament had not yet been declared scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament is God-breathed. So our question is, what about the New Testament? Where's our confidence in the New Testament? Well, it's found right here in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, he explains how we can trust the New Testament scriptures. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Here's how we know the New Testament scriptures are reliable. When the disciples were walking with Jesus, they weren't taking notes like some of you are this morning. They didn't know they had to take notes. Jesus said to them, I noticed that you didn't take notes. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring to your recollection the things that I taught you when I was with you. And he's going to explain them to you and you're going to write them down and people are going to have them. That's what Jesus says here. You're going to know what I taught. It's what the historic uh, recollection and appreciation of what Jesus taught and did. This is uh, what forms our belief system. Beloved, I don't know if you understand this, but our religion, our, our movement, our our belief system is founded on his history, historic reality, on places and names and times. We can go back and look through the scriptures and find kings who are dated in history. We can go to the places where this is written about and they are there. We can research the names of individuals and they exist. This is a fascinating reality, but this is what gives us great confidence. We have a historic book. We also have a doctrinal book. Jesus says to, to them, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. And he tells them that this is, this is what comes from the Father. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. The deposit of truth that the Father in heaven wants us to have was given to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive, the apostles will receive the doctrinal reality of the teachings of Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we have this 
this trust, this, this um, deposit of God's truth from eyewitness accounts to Jesus' life that the Holy Spirit has now granted the office to the apostles on behalf of the Father and the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit to bring theological implications to us of Jesus' life. That's the, the letters to the churches, the, the, the epistles are, are, are uh, doctrinal implications of the life of Jesus and the teachings of Christ. So we can count on the historic what happened and we can count on the doctrinal so what that, that what happened. We have in the scriptures. And then finally he says, and, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to tell you what is yet to come, verse 13, at the end of verse 13, what is yet to come, the prophetic. So we have in the New Testament the historic of Jesus' recollection. We have the doctrinal in the, in, in the writings, in the, in the letters, and we have the prophetic in what is yet to come, what Christ is yet to do. We have total confidence that in the same way the Old Testament was God-breathed, the New Testament is God-breathed through Jesus Christ, granting to us this deposit of truth from the Father in heaven. We have confidence, full confidence, in the Scriptures because of the Holy Spirit. And what is yet to come? What is yet to come is the final judgment on those who would not believe, on those who are depending on their self-righteousness, on those who think judgment is a fantasy. So where does that leave us? In cooperating with the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in a world that is oppressed under it, the weight of its guilt. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends who don't know Christ feel guilty every day of their lives. We have the truth that they can be forgiven, that they can no longer be sin, but believe in Jesus Christ, be forgiven of their sins. They can stop depending on self-righteousness, which will get them nowhere, and depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they can live now with no condemnation, nor will there ever be for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we have this message to lift the burden of the oppressed of their own sinfulness into the marvelous presence of the light of the truth of Jesus Christ, that the same Holy Spirit who convict, convicts might convince them of their need of a savior like he did for you and for me. So that's why Father's Day matters here. That's why putting our prayer efforts toward the rescue of people in this region from their guilt matters. Because like you and I, God is bringing people to himself. And we continue to see the testimonies Sunday by Sunday of God's saving work. So won't you pray with us? Won't you commit to this work? Won't you live a life that models the saving life of Jesus Christ, that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit might grab hold of burdened, guilty hearts desperate for rescue and not knowing where to go or what to do?
But we know. We know. Let's tell them. Our Father, I pray this morning and thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, O Lord, that you do not leave us as orphans. You do not leave us alone in the midst of the wickedness of our world and the hatred toward us and the persecution and the trials and all that comes toward us, the headwinds of wickedness. You grant to us the presence of the Holy Spirit who enables us, empowers us, helps us, uses us as evidence of a better way to live. Lord, this we ask that we might be to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. For your great name's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What advice can I give to you? Love not the world. It hates you. And if you love it, when it turns on you, it will cause you great sorrow. Rather, turn all of your affections toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you. He will never turn against you. He will never forsake you. He will always be with you. And those of you who are embroiled in the trials of this world, facing the wickedness of the world, facing its hatred, facing maybe expressions of it among people who you're shocked and surprised that they would. Remember, Jesus warned us of this. It's maybe just possible that you are living out evidence of the transformed life in such a way that you are cooperating with the Holy Spirit in bringing great conviction upon those who see you and they're lashing out. So rather, live our lives in what we would call applied discipleship. We've never, have, has there been a time in recent days when that is more important than today. In this world that's evidently steeped in guilt, shine forth with a clear example of applied discipleship that people might see something different and see lives that live with freedom and liberty and no condemnation and no guilt and desire that for themselves and turn and ask you what must I do to have the life you have and by the power and work of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the reality of Jesus Christ through your witness people will come to know him and love him like you do as well our father we pray that this promise of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the lives of in a world that's wicked will enable us to sail with confidence into the headwinds of that wickedness knowing that you will not leave us and that you will help us in our testimony of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know our world isn't safe, but we also know that because of the Holy Spirit, we can live saved and make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.